0: The reading of the Scriptures, chapter 10, reading verses 14 to 21. I encourage you to hear the word of the Lord in faith and with joy. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of
1: the greatest uh, excuses of all time, certainly um, I suspect on occasion we have all used it, um, and certainly, uh, we all hear it a lot, but it's an excuse that I didn't know, just did not know. I will admit to you, I've tried that with Oklahoma Highway Patrolmen on occasion. <laughs> never seems to work. I um, had one of them tell me, guys like you, there'd be chaos on the street, so get ready as he gets into my my wallet. But again, uh, I didn't know. Think about it. Uh, he's tired a lot at work. Uh, how come I didn't know? I would always say, well, why didn't you know? Uh, but it is an excuse that you cannot use with God. It's a particular context is, that's what Israel is saying. Well, we didn't know these things. Uh, Paul's going to say, well, you did know. But uh, One of the reasons it's an excuse that does not work is Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So all men know. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So uh try it, uh try it on the patrolman, try it on the police officer, try it with your boss at work, uh, but don't use it with God uh because uh, you are without excuse. Uh and because we do know, God will hold us accountable. Uh so in our text this morning, Israel is accountable because God sent them multiple messengers, verses 14 to 15 but they rejected the message, verses 16 to 21. And this applies to everyone. The world has been flooded with messengers. The issue is is not what we don't know. It's properly handling what we do know. Uh, one of my uh, perhaps jaded philosophies is a lot of people don't want to go to church often is because they were afraid that they might learn something that they should engage in. Uh, But that's what the scriptures principally teach, is it not? What man should believe concerning God and what duty God requires of all of us. So it's a fatal error uh, to think that ignorance is culpable because we do know, because God has made it evident within us. Uh, was with Israel and it is uh, with all of us. So we should learn the scriptures uh, so that we can meet our duties before God, believe in his Savior, Christ Jesus, and labor to please him. And relish in what we do know and ask God, of course, uh, to teach us all that we do not know. Uh, but we know in verses 14 to 15, because God has sent so many messengers. Uh, Paul has uh, five questions that he begins with, questions of calling, believing, hearing, preaching, and sending. And all of these aspects embrace messengers. So at first blush, uh, Israel is not accountable because these essential events were, were not present in their lives. And then Paul is going to correct their fatal error because God has sent messengers. So they should respond to his calling. They should believe here. They should hear the preaching. And they should acknowledge that God has indeed sent multiple messengers. So Paul's going to dismantle their excuse. Uh, His answer is going to be in five Old Testament citations. Again, that would be of incredible importance for the Jews because they had the Old Testament Scriptures. Hence, they did know. Not that they didn't know, but they did know. And God has sent messengers with his message. So first, Paul begins, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings. It's very interesting. Uh, we could translate that participle uh, of preaching the gospel. Uh, remind you of the gospel. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Of Jesus, the text reads, having finished purification for sins. Let me say that again. Having finished purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, That is the essence of the gospel. He has paid for, made purification for all of the sins of his people past, present, and future. The announcement of the gospel, the hope of the Christian. Uh, but the citation uh, that Paul brings is from Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. And the context is the coming of messengers who promise restoration. Israel will soon be in captivity. The messengers will come and pronounce freedom. Uh, the Old Testament has the subject of of the proclamation of feet, and the one proclaiming in the singular. Uh, And the immediate reference in the context is that God is king. God was king when they were sent in captivity, and God is going to be king when he sets them free. But it's also something more perilous, namely the fourth servant song. Uh, The Lord has a suffering servant who's going to come and affect the gospel, that Christ is the good news, so that he is the greater fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. Uh, The description in my mind is a figure of speech in which there is a substitution of effect for the cause, namely, God sent them the preeminent messenger of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, the subject and verbs are plural, meaning that God has done more than that. He has sent multiple messengers. I remind you from the great illustration of the Reformation. Luther's in Germany, Calvin in Switzerland, Knox goes to Scotland. In England, the Puritans rose up. Many of them come to America. In subsequent generations, William Carey goes to India. By the way, he was in India for six years before he saw his first convert. Reminder that oftentimes we, we kind of give up too easily. Uh, Carey's response was, I can plod. We need plotters. Yeah. William Carey was a plodder. He just simply kept proclaiming the gospel. Hudson Taylor goes to China, David Livingston to Africa so that there's a deluge of messengers throughout the world. But the greatest of them all is Christ. We oftentimes uh, kiss or hug messengers who bring good news. We should kiss and hug him. It's the greatest news of all time. Remind you of what that good news is. Having made purification for sin, he sat down. He finished the work that God the Father gave him to do. We oftentimes uh, listen to the voice of Satan or his nefarious messengers that we should be guilty, but he has paid for our guilt. He has paid in full. Nothing is left undone by the majesty, the kingdom of our Savior. He finished the work, praise God. Uh, The greatest message of all time. Uh, Certainly we have learned that in Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8. But there's a shift. We know through all of the messengers. But we reject the message anyway. That certainly was true of Israel in verses 16 to 21. The problem is not the messengers, certainly not the message. uh, They just didn't heed the gospel. Uh, Citation here uh, from Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 1. Verse 16, they didn't heed the gospel. Uh, This text, as you know, is also about the suffering servant. The context is that he prospers and accomplishes the greatest victory of all time. Yet part of the astonishment of the prophet Isaiah is so few have believed our report. It's true in Isaiah's day, it's true in Paul's day, perhaps in our day. Yeah. And the report is the message of the gospel, the accomplishments of Messiah, that he has come. Uh, John cites this very same text in John chapter 12 and verse 38. The word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom, Isaiah goes on and references the power that must be present in believing the report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You and I take a report. We cannot change the heart. Only the Lord can do that. By the way, that should lift from you the great burden. We sometimes think that it's uh, our mandate to change lives. It's not. Only God can do that. We simply must be plotters in carrying the message of the gospel and looking to the Lord uh, that he would manifest his power. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It means in John's day, very few. In the mystery of the providence of God, very few. Uh, Few believed as anticipated by the prophet uh, because God granted Power, to so few. Certainly a reason to praise God, is it not? If you know Christ is your Savior, it's not because you were more learned, a better reader, or smarter. It's that he granted you power. Not just to hear the message, but to comprehend that message. It's very interesting in the context of John 12. Think about it. It's after the resurrection of Lazarus. Oh my goodness, if there's ever a proof for someone to believe the messenger and the message, it would be that Christ resurrected Lazarus from the dead. We sometimes think, oh, if I knew a better proof, I could convince my daughter or my son or my parents or my beloved cousin. Evidence is not the issue. Only God can change the heart. And the context of John is not just the resurrection of Lazarus. It's the many miracles of Christ. The evidence was compelling, but God hadn't granted power. The beauty of the majesty when we come to faith is we owe everything to him. Uh, He floods us with messengers who bring the same message. He's also gracious to us opening our hearts. But as in Isaiah's day, so in the Lord's day, so few believed. Paul refines this. They knew, verse 17, but they didn't believe or have faith. And so he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Specifically the word about Christ. I think that's a better translation. It's the word about Christ. What did Christ do? came to save sinners, manifest his power, purify his people from their sins. So Paul says they have heard. Verse 18, I say surely they have. It's not that they have never heard. Have they? Indeed, they have. They have heard. I will tell you, I oftentimes hear this excuse, well, what about some tribe in Papua New Guinea? Well, what about them? The Word of God has gone there. Creation is everywhere. The fact that they are the creature has been stamped upon their hearts. They know, Paul tells us, they suppress the truth and the righteousness. They want to pretend not to know. Reality they do know. And they reject. Here he's quoting Psalm 19.4. Context of the Psalms. Revelation. The first part of the Psalm is the subject of general revelation, God in nature. Let I me mean, think about it the incredible complexity of our universe. How can you really believe that we're here by time or chance? That is so absolutely incredible to me. To me, it would take much more faith to believe in evolution, that we are the product of time and chance, than to believe that there's a divine creator. I choose the latter. Christians must choose the latter. But everywhere in nature, nature cries out to us that there's a creator. The creation tells us about the glory of God. It tells everybody about God. So Paul says, they are without excuse. Second part of Psalm 19 is about special revelation in Scripture. Nature convicts us. The Word of God tells us that there is a Savior. Two witnesses. Nature and God's special revelation. Point of the Psalter is that the Word has gone out universally so that Israel knew. And we know as well. In the case of Israel, the prophets told them In our case, the apostles took the message to the world of their day, and subsequent generations, messengers have taken it to the ends of the earth. And then Paul turns in verse 19 to Moses in a citation from Deuteronomy 32, 21. This is the song of Moses about their idolatry. We know from the law that God is a jealous God. Because of their idolatry, God is going to do something incredibly ironic. He's going to make them jealous. He was jealous, his right to be jealous. They have forsaken him for idols, and so he's going to make them jealous. How does he do that? Uh, In the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities. Uh, And the ironic use here is that God will make them angry and jealous by sending the blessings to the Gentile nations, to provoke them to jealousy. And therefore, they would have known this from their own scripture, because the prophets proclaim it to be so. Final citation uh, is in verse 20, from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 and 2. Again, Paul is speaking principally to Jews, He's repairing to their own scripture that they did know and that their ignorance, their proclamation of ignorance is sheer folly because the Old Testament is full of witnesses about the message and the messengers. Context of Isaiah chapter 65 is that Israel knew God and that they knew that God would turn to the Gentiles and yet to continue to invite them, but they turned away. The anti-type, again, continuing fulfillment in Paul's day. Uh, let's look, repairing to Isaiah chapter 65, at what they turned to, because it's most instructive for our day. Isaiah chapter 65. So he invites them. But notice. Notice what they turn to first. Verse two, they walked following their own thoughts. Rejected God message for their own. Oftentimes hear this. Well, Phil, I'm so happy that you're pleased with what you found. I have my own way. Uh, It's good for you, but I have my own way. It's what Israel is saying. God, you are our creator. You set us free from Egypt. Redeemed us in the Passover lamb, but we have discovered a better way. So they follow their own way. They walked in their own thoughts in contrast to Revelation. That's why whenever you're witnessing, be very careful about your own thoughts. Turn to the Scriptures, because it's there we have the Word of God. And the Word of God summons all men to respond to His Scripture. Secondly, they provoke God continually to His face, verses 3 to 4, by their idolatry. Notice the reading of the text. A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine flesh, and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. Very interesting that the Greek translation of the Old Testament has here uh, that they worship demons. It's really what our culture is doing. When people reject God, they're worshiping demons. Uh, In the Targum of the Old Testament, uh, when uh, Moses had gone up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, as you know, they throw a great big party. Part of that party is a big bonfire, the Targum says, and Satan was seen dancing in the flames because he had seduced them with idolatry. I mean, we, we're much too cosmopolitan for that kind of language. But oftentimes think to myself, how in the world could someone believe thus and such? And then I have to catch myself by saying, well, Satan is hard and fast at work. And what a genius he is in seducing. Thirdly, they sit among the graves or inquire about their future from the dead. Seeking the dead. Ancestor worship. Quite uh, prominent uh, in Asia. Worshipping ancestors. I honor my ancestors. I don't seek uh, wisdom about life from them because it's in the scripture. Next, they violate the law. Uh, had a, uh, serviceman come to my home that does some work for me once a year. Uh, finally shared the gospel with him. He patted me on my shoulder. So, so glad you're happy, Phil. Um, but, uh, uh, to assuage, I guess, uh, his uh, rejection of my message, he gave me some sausages. It was a contradiction. The gentleman was Jewish. Sausages, I don't care what they're from, but they always involve a little bit of pork. I reminded him of that. He said, well, when I'm in Israel, I, I, I don't eat pork, but <laughs> I got so tickled by that one. Uh, so when you go to your holy land, you don't eat pork, but when you're in America, you're a cafeteria Jew. Well, he didn't like that kind of talk, but I was trying to be gentle, but that's the way so many people are. I'm a cafeteria Christian. Uh, I pick and choose. I make my own way. You, you run across that. That's a, that's a religion, ladies and gentlemen, that is endemic in America. I was uh, once at a dude ranch and uh, talking to a couple, um, To be careful, they were a strange couple. Um, and finally, the young lady said to me, I'm a, I'm a cafeteria, thus and such. Okay, I get that. I go to the cafeteria, and uh, I want chicken fried steak and lots of gravy. My wife is elbowing me in my side, and uh, three pieces of chocolate pie. But, but uh, the, the scriptures are not a cafeteria. They're the duties that God requires of us and the power to engage us to meet those duties. So there's duty and there's grace everywhere. But don't play cafeteria. And don't say that you want to be ignorant because it's culpable too. Uh, lastly, this is uh, very, very prominent in our culture. Isaiah 65.5, they manufacture their own holiness. Yeah, we are adept at that. Well, Barsoom, you have your way, but I have my way. My way is just as good as yours. It's a very prominent lesson uh, in uh, the Old Testament, uh, but they perverted it in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter thirty, prophet says they refused to listen to the instruction of the Lord. And they say to the seers, you must not tell us about your vision and about your prophets. In other words, they didn't want to know. That's why a lot of people don't want to go to church, except uh, Easter, Christmas, uh, they don't want to learn. Don't tell me about God. So they're telling their own prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Endemic in the American church. So we forsake our great confessional statements. We forsake biblical exposition. We want to hear soft words, smooth words. Amos chapter two, verses 11 and 12. Prophet says, I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, and some of your young men to be Nazarites. So what did the nation do? Uh, they made the Nazarites drink wine, which was forbidden by the Nazarite vow. You took the Nazarite vow, you forsook alcohol. It's not that they had to forsake it, but if you took that vow, it was your obligation. So they seduced the Nazarites. Incredible. And you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. That's like the church saying, Phil, don't don't, don't preach the scriptures. Uh, Give us three poems and make one point and uh, let us out early. You don't need to use the scriptures. We know it anyway. Well, they didn't know it. Uh, The prophets were critical in calling the nation to account. But they're saying to the prophets, be quiet. We don't need to hear your word. It's even worse in Malachi chapter two, verses seven and eight. The prophet is uh, praising uh, the instruction of Levi. But he says, as for you, you have turned aside from his way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi says the Lord of hosts. They didn't want to hear the truth. They wanted to hear folly. It's dangerous ground. But such was the ground of Israel. The more telling point is that they didn't know. They knew the truth. They didn't want the truth. They wanted smooth words. By the way, the concept of smooth words uh, comes from Daniel chapter 11. It's also used of the making of an idol. A metalsmith takes a piece of metal and he smooths it out, makes it smooth and turns it into an idol, meaning that the moment you turn to smooth words, it becomes transformational in your life. And so it is in the life of many, many people. They've turned to idols, and their hearts are made smooth because all they want is smooth words. They don't want the truth. God has been gracious to us because we desire the opposite. It's a poignant application to the American church. We have drifted away, come to look like Israel. Doing the same thing that they did in the days of the prophets. We seek our own way, not the ways of God. We're tolerant of other messengers and messages. I get, a, get an email, I don't know, half a dozen times a year about a Christian organization. I use the word organization in bold letters because it's not Christian, it's just another organization inviting me to pluralistic religious events. I don't need another message. I have the best there is in King Messiah. And because we are all our own gods, we don't want to hear different words from anyone else. It's like the... Israelites were forbidden to take God's name in vain, if I'm my own God, then don't tell me about another message because I'm my own God and I make my own way. It's a folly that we've come to in uh, many American churches. Uh, We're in God's face with horrors like abortion and redefining our own identity. I've told some of you the story that an organization sent me an email saying, hey, Power we can put a rainbow sign in your yard and that you affirm every lifestyle. Point is, uh, God doesn't give us that prerogative. He makes us. It's His prerogative. To choose otherwise is to get in His face and accuse him, and insult him, because he's the creator. We inquire about God from the stars and false religion. I was reading a book about uh, horrors of uh, uh, women soldiers in Soviet Russia during the Second World War. So, uh, again, I... Um, State religion is orthodoxy. Um, But when they would get troubled, many of them would turn to icons and gypsies. Really? I mean, even in orthodoxy, they believe in holy scripture. Why would I go to a gypsy to tell me about my future? I used to drive to work. I was in business, retired in, into 2016. used to drive by a gypsy shop saying, you know, you want to know something about the future? Come and see me. That wasn't exactly the sign, but I mean, I don't need gypsies. I have Christ. I don't need to read my horoscope in the Daily Oklahoman. I have the Savior and the majesty of Holy Scripture. We turn away from those things because they're an insult to God an insult to God. We're lawless and manufacture our own holiness. I mean, I think, of, I think of sacerdotalism, or some of you know it as sacramentalism. I fail. Priests don't make it right. I can engage in uh, saying a few prayers, and that'll make it right. No, God alone makes it right. I remind you of 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Guard yourself from idols. Very instructive because nowhere else in that epistle is there any mention whatsoever of idolatry, but it is idolatry to manufacture your own understanding about Jesus Christ and to turn away from his messengers and the majesty of his message. You go anywhere else, you become an idolater. And your idols will transform you and make you over. The majesty of the scriptures. So we learn in our text, they knew. They didn't like the message. In fact, they seduced their messengers. How sad is that? My house is on fire. Oh, I don't believe it. Mr. Fireman, go away. My smoke alarm is going off. Oh, the battery's down. I don't need to worry about that. Who cares anyway? It's kind of like my favorite illustration back when I was uh, high school. Alfred E. Newman, what mean worry? Well, when God sends messengers with his message, uh he is something to worry about because he cannot be denied. So Paul began with a prophet. He then goes to the great King David and to the law in Moses and concludes with a prophet. He comes to us with Jesus Christ. He's the supreme messenger as God and he's also the message from God and we must hear him. Uh, this morning, uh, beyond the delight of learning about God from the scriptures, we have the occasion to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's table. Uh, it's a sacrament uh, instituted by our Savior. It is, uh, in our philosophy, a place where we meet the majesty of God. And we come having confessed our sin, uh, because uh, to embrace his presence in any other way, is uh, is a way of is a way of danger. Uh, we began our service with confession, but uh, we again will have other occasions if there's something to which uh, you must get right before God, uh, because He's a holy God, uh, and we cannot come to Him uh, living in sin for which we refuse to be repentant and get in His face with our refusal. Uh, so we come sorrowful for our sins, and we trust that these have been forgiven for the sake of Christ uh, and that in his grace he has forgiven us. Uh, of course, the biblical warrant for all of this is the words of our Savior, uh, the apostle uh, Paul uh, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, for I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, and that we continue to practice uh, the word that has been delivered to us uh, in the sacrament. Uh, I would remind you that if you are a guest here this morning, uh, we have an open communion, that it is available to all who profess Christ as Savior and to all who are uh, not living in some known sin for which they refuse to repent. Uh, And so for the support of our spiritual and heavenly life, which believers have, he has sent for us a living bread, which came down from heaven, namely Jesus Christ. And in a special and intense way, he comes to us in the sacrament, so that we have fellowship with Him. Fellowship with our Savior by His Holy Spirit. And as we remember Him and have fellowship with Him, He nourishes our faith to be faithful, if you will, to be a plotter, to live for Him and His glory and His kingdom. As the bread is broken and served to you, I invite you to hold it for which time all are served. And then we uh, we'll protect together. Uh, engage if you need to in some silent confession, but certainly engage in your communion with Christ in worship and in thanksgiving, for he indeed is worthy. And then I will pray for us and we will eat together to manifest our unity, the power of God, the power of the gospel, that we are all so incredibly different but with respect to our confession and receiving him as the chief messenger, we are one in Jesus Christ. Prepare our hearts. Receive the bread. Our Father, we give thee thanksgiving for the bread of heaven. Uh, We come hungry, and we come thirsty, and our souls are nourished, in our communion and fellowship with our Savior. And we are strengthened in the inner man uh, to continue faithful. Uh, grant the great work of the Spirit to affect these things in our lives. And we are grateful for the one-time sacrifice for all time for the people of God. Uh, Bless us uh, perpetually throughout our days to remember the sacrifice of our Savior. For we indeed were not worthy... But the scriptures uh, called us, uh, we heard, uh, we believed, and we acknowledge that Christ has come for us. And to that end, we are profoundly and forever grateful. And so bless us as we remember him and as we fellowship with him, as we partake of the bread. And these things we ask in the name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Remind you as we pass the service, uh, in the center there is wine, periphery there is grape juice that each may partake in the freedom of their own particular traditions. But more importantly, Christ alone drank the cup of judgment for us that we might drink the cup of the new covenant. Apprehend all of the majesty of the blessings that accrue to us because he drank for us the cup of judgment. Uh, As with the bread, as the service is passed, as you hold the cup, until which time all are served. And uh, we we will drink together to manifest in the power and the majesty of the God of heaven. He has made diversity into unity and unified us by the one-time sacrifice of the great God of heaven who went to the cross for us. Prepare our hearts for receiving the cup of the new covenant. Our Father, again, we give thee thanksgiving that in power, sovereign power, the message came to us. And the Lord opened our hearts that we might believe and apprehend the majesty of our Savior. An apprehension so majestic that we gladly received. And God in infinite mercy gave us faith in that apprehension so that we could turn away from idols to the living and true God. A blessing so majestic, we are profoundly grateful for a brief season to remember and to fellowship with our great shepherd. Bless us, Lord, uh, for this time and provoke us all the more uh, to live for him and his kingdom. His name we pray. Amen.